0: Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah 54, as we leave many of you's favorite chapter in the book and head into my favorite next week, Isaiah 54, this is God's Word for you today. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will be spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offering will possess the nations." and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more, for your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. For the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should have, uh, sorry, should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, Storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, your foundations with sapphire will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children." In righteousness you shall be established and shall be far from opposition, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please speak not just in the reading of your word, that's perfect and good and right and true, but also in its preaching Would you give me the words to say, and would you please give us all the ears to hear, the minds to understand, and the hearts to believe? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Let you in on a little pastoral secret. A little bit of a kind of peel back the curtain to see what it's like to be a pastor. One of the, the, the little secrets that I, I think pretty much every pastor I've ever talked to holds is that we desperately hate long engagements. You know, I wasn't expecting that. where you know, that's true though. Actually, every pastor I've talked to, we all hate long engagements. There's a multitude of reasons for that. One of which is we certainly know that purity is a really hard thing to cultivate over a very long engagement. But I think even more than that is there's an element where all pastors kind of we enjoy the delight of the moment in a marriage. Right? There's a a joy and gladness and the doors open in the back and the bride comes in and the the groom looks all goofy and stupid because he's so excited he doesn't know how to manage his own emotions, and somebody starts crying, and then most of the room's crying, and it's just all happy tears everywhere. it's just good fun. I think part of it is so much of it, it we don't like living in that in-between period where the, the, the joy is promised but not yet realized, right? Where the, the happiness is promised, we're going to get married, there's a, a ring to remind us, we're doing the hard work to get ready to get married But the joy is unfulfilled yet. It's unrealized. It's not fully brought into effect. There's a point where, in the evening, parties go separate ways to different houses. They have boundaries that are still established. The big party hasn't started. There's not been the food, there's not been the fellowship, there's not been the friends. We don't like living in the in between. The time when it's promised, but not yet full. And I think, um, for many of us, I suspect we don't enjoy living in that moment, partially because we're such impatient creatures, (laughs) and partially because I think the more you kind of grow into adulthood, the more you realize that's pretty much the only place we ever live. The in-between time between when joys are promised and when joys are realized. And even when we do have those brief moments of realized joy, perhaps at the holidays, when all the families in town and the kids are back in town and the grandkids are there, those joys pass too quickly. How do we live in the in-between time? Well, Isaiah 54 really gets at that. How do we live in the in-between time? So much of this book has been uh, long to preach because it's so negative. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of of God saying to His people through Isaiah, look, you've got to change your hearts. They're hard. They're unyielding. Your rebellious spirit must be conquered and submitted before the Lord or destruction will follow. And Israel continues to say, nah, I got it. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. To God. Not very respectful. And so we've got just chapter after chapter after chapter of really hard words a nation that's getting ready to be wiped off the face of the map. And now, at the end of the book, we we really kind of begin to see the turn made to say, hey, but that's not the end of the story. In chapter 53, we get one of the kind of most beautiful portraits of that. 52.13 through the end of 53, laying out hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus in very specific description what his ministry would be like. That he would be the Lord's anointed, that he would show up, that he would suffer on behalf of his people, on behalf of God's people. And in doing so, he would redeem them and they would be blessed. And so, the original reading audience, those that would have read this for the first time, now, granted, Isaiah's ministry is very long, but for large parts of it would have lived in this in-between time between all of the bad news existing and the good news arriving. You've promised that sin breeds destruction and destruction's coming, but here in chapter 53, we have the Messiah that shows up, yay, how do we live in the in-between time? Well, chapter 54, actually, isn't so much the in-between time before the arrival of the Messiah as much as the in-between time after. Really, chapter 53 ends with this kind of beautiful portrait of his victory. Look at verse 10 of chapter 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, the Messiah. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, what will happen? Well, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper. And blessing is going to follow for God's people. Out of his anguish of soul, the Lord will see and be satisfied. And in doing so, uh, people will have their iniquities removed, will be counted as righteous. Verse 12, therefore, excuse me, blessing. I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide spoil with the strong. He he will have the inheritance of God, the blessing of God, uh, because he did this thing. Redemption's going to happen, and blessing will take place for the people of God. And so, now, we kind of as New Testament Christians are able to look back and say, hey, chapter 53, prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus, is fulfilled. Jesus came according to chapter 53. He lived according to chapter 53. He died according to chapter 53. He's raised according to chapter 53 and is vindicated. He, he saved the people of God and is now providing blessing. Yet, there is an aspect in which it's not yet fully fulfilled, particularly the ending verse. That this, this blessing that he's accomplished, well, we have part of it, but we don't yet have all of it. The inheritance of God is given to Jesus, but not yet even fully to us. So we live in that in-between time. The in-between time where Jesus has won. It is finished. He has accomplished our salvation. But yet... We have enemies. We have sin. We have bodies that are broken. Relationships that are damaged. Discouragements sometimes seemingly on every side. Betrayals. Heartbreaks. And suffering and disease. And we live in this kind of wonderfully almost incongruous experience where God has promised all of these good and great things. And for much of us and for most of our lives, they're so good and great. But the difficulties are real and cannot be kind of ignored or pushed aside. We don't make light of them. And so how do we Live in the in-between time. How do we live in between this kind of arrival of Christ as death and resurrection, and the the promised victory and goodness and glory, and and yet it's not yet made full. Well, chapter fifty-four, three uh, grammatical kind of breaks in the passage. Our points are going to be drawn from those easy breaks: verses one through five, six through ten, and eleven through seventeen. It's interesting that as Isaiah writes to God's people, he's writing the words of God here specifically as the chapter starts, but there's a strong imperative that's given. Look, the Messiah has showed up in chapter 53. Look, he's been victorious in chapter 53. Yeah, your life still stinks, but that's okay. The Messiah's here. So, what's your task, people of God? What's, what's our obligation? What's our duty? Well sing. Rejoice. Break into song. It's one of those parts of kind of the American entertainment industry that's always kind of made me laugh, the the really the genre of the musical. Where, like, everybody's living and kind of doing their lives and, you know, kind of motoring around, and then somebody just gets excited enough that they just burst out into song, and then the entire group of people around them join in, and everybody's singing, and that's honestly just a little weird, if we're honest. <laughs> but there's an element in which there's God's calling us to do something a little bit similar, which is say, look, you're supposed to just kind of break out into song! But the reality is that uh, for sometimes for significant parts of our lives, we don't feel like singing. Or if we do, we're going to sing something in a minor key. And the lyrics are going to be the kind of lyrics I don't want to listen to. <laughs> I don't want you killing my good mood with that. No thanks, I'll pass. Actually, Isaiah explains why. People of God, you're supposed to be busy singing because the promises of God are still true. Right? That's your kind of overarching point here. You sing because the promises are still true. Sing, O barren one. So, you people of God who who actually have no fruit, so to speak, not spiritually in this sense, but in in the sense of like a fullness of life, of blessing, of joy, and greatness and gladness, you stinky people, the ones who have stinky lives, that are having a hard time, that are miserable, that have uh, death and destruction and misery on every side, you miserable people, sing, is kind of where he's going at. Not with the insult aspect to it, but just acknowledgement. You barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud for those who've not been in labor. So even though you don't have kids, and kids are a mark of God's blessing in the Old Testament, even though you are those that will be marked as the miserable, you're called to sing and honor the Lord. Why? Because His promises are still true. The children of the desolate one will be more than the one who's got tons of kids, now we're going back here all the way to Genesis where God has promised to his people that they will be more than like the sand on the seashore. Right? You remember Abraham with this? He's doubting God. They're getting old, kind of getting up there in years. She's past the point of childbearing. Her womb's kind of not working the way they're expecting it to. And it's like, well, oh, no, all right. Well, well, rats. I mean, God promised but I'm not sure, hasn't been fulfilled yet, and we're in the in-between time. Living in that point between God's promise that he would provide children and that those children would be like the sand on the seashore and the fulfillment. What do we do? And interestingly, Isaiah is taking that image and saying, but just because the kids aren't born yet doesn't mean they're not going to exist. Just because you haven't had them yet doesn't mean they're not real. Just because God hasn't fulfilled his promise yet doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, actually, as you're busy singing, go fix your tent, verse 2, which for us is like, okay, cool, all right, great. We don't stay in tents that often when we do. Most of us, we stay in kind of those fancy, like, uh, uber-sophisticated nylon ones with, you know, the poles that snap together. And that's not what the old canvas tents that they have. Theirs, it would have been built as a kind of more significant structure. And everything wouldn't have had those little pop-together poles that it's, you know, kind of self just poof, and there's the tent, right everything would have been stretched out and you know nailed into the ground with stakes and pulled tight with straps and interestingly as you're busy singing the promises of god go ahead and be planning on his provision enlarge the place of your tent look you need to build an extra bedroom you don't have a nursery you better have a nursery if you're going to have kids. And Israel will be like, what are you talking about? God's God's promised, but we're not seeing it yet. He's said this is going to happen, but it's not happened yet. And interestingly, the Lord is saying, look, the promise is still true. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Go instead, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Build an addition to your house. Get the nursery ready. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Again, stretch out your tent strengthen your stakes. Why? For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and he now mixes his metaphors, switches from just Abraham with the specific children nursery illustration, and moves to the national illustration. For you as a nation will spread abroad to your right and to your left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities." prophesied that the people of God will uh, kind of, again, come into their own. Now, the disciples misunderstand this. They think, again, it's a nation-state of Israel, and so even as Rome is ruling the Mediterranean, they're always kind of focused on this, like, hey, Jesus, when are we going to kind of kill all the Romans? Like, I'm ready, I'm ready to be radicalized. When do I get to be that kind of awesome little rebel that goes around killing all the Romans? Is it time yet? Can I? No. Because they're missing that even this is fulfilled not ultimately in one specific nation state, but in the spiritual kingdom of Christ that spreads around the entirety of the globe, which is then consummated in the physical kingdom of Christ. It's going to happen. The promise is still true. You don't see it yet, but that doesn't make it any less true. In so many ways, it's kind of like just thinking as I was reading through this, kind of I think stories in my head sometimes and it was to me like this great moment, like a child before Christmas. And it's like the child throwing a petulant fit because they didn't get what they want for Christmas. Meanwhile, mom and dad have it sitting in the next room, still wrapped. I didn't get what I wanted. And mom and dad are like, it's literally around the corner. Just because the kid doesn't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And doesn't mean it's not theirs. They just can't see it yet. It's just not time yet. There's an element of that, and I love how even in verses 4 and 5, that's then expanded, not just into kind of the the nation-state language, but even into our feelings. I like this. The Lord cares about your feelings, probably not nearly as much as you do, to be truthful, but He does care about your feelings. Fear not, for you not be ashamed you're not gonna be confounded. You will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood will be remembered no more. Like, so even this whole, like the, the, the national stain that they have become, the, the dishonor, the embarrassment, that's gonna go away too. The Lord's gonna take care of you. His promises are still yes and amen. Verse 5, even it begins to make the turn as to why we should do this. Well, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, and God of the whole earth he's called. The promises are still true. And I like this. This is God showing he knows the hearts of his people, he knows how humans work, because honestly, one of those kind of natural tendencies is when we are in the in-between time is to mistake the Lord's patience or wisdom for the Lord's absence or laziness or inability or lack of willingness to follow through. Put differently, it's so easy for us when we're in the in-between time or worse yet, when we're in the in-between time when it gets hard, Right? When, when physical pain sets in, or emotional pain sets in, or we have the death of a spouse or the death of a friend, when we have sickness come into our house, it's so easy to either think one of two mistakes: that God's just not at work anymore. Or that he's at work, but somehow my pain's kind of won out right here. That his promise just isn't really true for this. And I, I think it's so interesting that kind of in light of the arrival of Jesus, Isaiah is saying to the people of God, now remember, the suffering they're going to go through or going through is absolutely dreadful. It's been described as so bad that you're going to have to worry about cannibalism, even eating your own children, because you're going to starve to death. It's horrible. And it's interesting to me that even in the midst of that kind of in-between time, God and Isaiah are going to the people of God and saying, look, don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't listen to the lies. Don't listen to the voice in your own head. Don't listen to the voice in your stomach that's telling you that God is lying to you. He's not. You're lying to you. The devil is lying to you. The world is lying to you, but God is not lying to you. In fact, actually, our task is, even in the midst of great difficulty, to be those who sing. Sing. those who rejoice in the promises of God. Well, honestly, I'll be candid, that's easy to kind of say in the good times, right? I'm having a good morning, some of you are, it's a good day. It's easy to say, hey, we should be busy singing the blessings of God, yay, it's a good day. However, there are some days where it doesn't feel quite so good. Where the days get so hard Where the pain gets so real that even then we want to doubt. Perhaps we want to quit, we want to give up. Or we say, Did God really say those promises are true? And then we catch our intonation on that, we're like, oh, I can't say that. I shouldn't think that. Because for just a second we've realized we've got the voice of Satan going. But I love that God understands our frailty. And he teaches us about himself. Verses 1 through 5 commands us to sing and rejoice because his promises are still true. But then verses 6 through 10, he then explains why his promises are still true. The Lord's called you, verse 6, Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, when she's cast off, says your God, for a brief moment, I did desert you. So it's interesting that he's kind of acknowledging, like, hey, your pain is a real thing. Your suffering is a real thing. You know why? For Israel. Not necessarily for you, but for Israel. (laughs) Because I left you. Yeah, yeah you're hurting and you're having an awful time of it and you're lonely and your life is absolutely dreadful. And the reason why it's dreadful is because I'm not there. I left. Right? And again, remember, he's using marriage illustration here and Israel has been unfaithful. They've regularly and serially been an adulterer against their God. And the Lord's like, yeah, I'm out. And I've been out for a while. And it's been a hard time for you. But you know what? Even that is not where the story stops. Verse seven, for a brief moment, I deserted you, but that's not where it stopped because with great compassion, I'm gonna gather you up in my arms. I'm gonna bring you all back together. I'm gonna big old bear hug. Verse eight, he explains in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. I mean, this is, he's explaining the dynamic of justice. They sinned, and there is justice that has to be worked out. Now, we find out from the rest of Scripture, really, chapter 53 is where this is ultimately satisfied for the people of God. Our sins are laid upon Jesus, not upon ourselves. But there was a time in which the Lord did hide his face, certainly from Jesus on the cross, from his people prior to that. But that's not where the story stops. Certainly, verse 8, I hid overflowing anger for a moment. I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. And I love this. He identifies himself as your Redeemer. He he self-identifies. Now, self-identification from the Lord is a little different than self-identification from us. Right? I could currently self-identify as a penguin, and unfortunately, it doesn't really do anything anything different except make you think less of me because I'm really not very a good penguin. I don't look like one. I can't really waddle like one. I could make you laugh trying, but I'm not going to do that today. Interestingly, when the Lord self-identifies, what he's doing is he's informing us into his very nature and to his very actions. He, he's not just declaring something into the ether. He's actually explaining the realities behind the very words themselves, and saying, look, the reason why I'm going to have compassion on you, I'm your Redeemer. It's what I've promised to be to you. It's the relationship that I've established with you is that we will be knit together because I will go and find you in the pit, and I will bring you back to me. I will go find you in slavery to sin and I will bring you back to me. I will go find you when you were lost and I will bring you back to me. I will go find you when you were dead and I will bring you back to me. He explains that, verse nine. It's like the days of Noah. I was angry for a season. Angry enough that he killed everybody on the planet except for 12 That's, or eight. That's pretty angry right? Very, very angry. But uh, no more. That, that promise that, that anger was satisfied, the world was destroyed, but he's promised he's not going to be angry with us like that. And again, we understand, really, it's because it's fulfilled in Jesus in chapter 53. But why? I mean, again, what's the, the, there's, it's like he's telling us, yeah, but I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Why? Well, verse 10, Is our key on this section. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. So if the mountains are destroyed from the planet, now how big, how big of a natural disaster does it have to be for the mountains to go away? We're talking cataclysmic the kind of things that would be a, you know, an a, a entire extermination of planet earth kind of size of problems. For the mountains to be removed, for the hills to be removed, but even if, if the earth were to be destroyed, my love would not leave you. Why? Well, because my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Now, we read that, and for many of us, if we have been in the Presbyterian world long enough, we catch the buzzword, but maybe don't catch the significance. If you've grown up largely outside of the Presbyterian world, you're like, what buzzword are you even talking about? Buzzword there, the key one that should make your ears perk up, that should make your mind kind of light up and "Mm, flashing the outside, the covenant word. And covenant is a promise, but not just a promise. It's the most serious of promises in the Scripture. It was the promise that had life or death consequences. It was the promise that could not be broken, and the person lived through it. And it was usually adjudged and adjudicated by God himself, and it was ultimate in promise. And interestingly here, God is saying, look, you you want to know why my promises can never go away? You know why the world's never going to ultimately destroy you? You want to know why I'm never going to flood the earth again? You want to know why that you can look forward to the promises to Abraham being fulfilled? You want to know why you can look forward to the promises to Hosea being fulfilled? You want to know why you can look forward to all of the promises fulfilled? is because I made a covenant. This is an interesting idea because covenants were usually not made by peers as much as made by kind of tops and bottoms, like a, uh, the authority figure and the one who is under the, the rule of the, the promise. And kind of maybe the best illustration you might think of is back in like the medieval era with the, the feudal vassal system, right? The lord of the castle made promises to protect the people and to, to you know, take care of them, and then they raised all the crops and gave him a portion, and it was kind of this symbiotic relationship, but there's a very strong governance there. And if if he didn't do his job, they were allowed to rebel and kill him. And if they didn't do their job, he was allowed to send the army and kill them. Everybody died, right, if you didn't do it. Interestingly here, though, the Lord is now kind of describing himself and saying, I've made my promises to you and my covenant, that great promise that I've made, covenant being kind of the big-picture category of the most serious and heavyweighted promises, are the promises that really anchor the very fabric of creation. If you think about it, it really is kind of the thing that holds the world together, that he's promised. In fact, we can kind of take this back. It actually shows a bit of a many of us, a gap in our thinking. If you have to answer the question, you would say, well, why does does God love you? Why does the Father love you? Now, don't say it out loud, please. This is rhetorical, but think in your head. What's your answer to that? Why does God love you? And the interesting thing is most of us in here in some form or fashion in our head have said something to the effect of, because Jesus, which is weirdly the wrong answer. Very much the wrong answer, actually. Because the covenant in which he set his love upon us was the covenant that was made prior to creation itself. When God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together, one God, three persons, agreed, inter-Trinitarian, made a covenant amongst themselves that they, God, one God, three persons, would create and would redeem and would sustain, and would glorify, and that entire thing would be done in love. Now, that's an amazing thing to think about, that actually God loved you before creation existed, before you existed, and he loved you before sin existed. In fact, actually, he loved you so much that he sent Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't love you because Jesus. Jesus because of his love. That was the promise that he made to himself. Prior to the creation of anything at all, he made the promise to himself that he would love us forever. That's why that term covenant is so incredibly important. It's binding forever. There's multiple covenants, but this is one. And so interestingly, that even though you're in the midst of a season of difficulty or perhaps caught in the in-between time or perhaps in that season of just misery, where you're like, does God even know what's going on anymore? I'm so done with this. Does he care about me anymore? Has he forgotten? Maybe he hates me. Well, the interesting thing is is that if you're in Christ, he's made that promise before the foundation of the world, before the world even existed that he would love you forever from outside of time and in it and after time itself. You see, we get to have this command given to us in this chapter to sing because the promises of God are still true. Well, why are his promises still true? Even though I can't see them, even though I might not yet be experiencing them, they are and always will be true because he promised in covenant prior to creation itself. And Romans 8 tells me nothing inside creation is strong enough to mess up his plan. Well, what do I have to look forward to then? (laughs) I mean, if he's planned this before creation even existed, if he's promised before creation even happened, what do I have to look forward to? Well, what is the end of the in-between time? Am I just kind of, you know, living out my days and just dread and wait? What do I have to look forward to? 11 through 17. (laughs) O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones And what we have here, I'm going to kind of skip through the next bit of it. These are words that are a hard translation because they're all very specific gemstones that we don't know all of what they are. Basically, the short version of verses 11 and 12 is that he's describing a city that has been crafted not with normal stones, as you would expect, but it's been crafted with gemstones, Right, think uh, Wizard of Oz, the Emerald City. Right, if you remember that, oh, have to see the Wizard and it's a beautiful green, you know, green city. Really, what this is foreshadowing is what shows up later in Revelation, which is in Revelation you have an entire kind of city that's crafted out of the most beautiful things that creation has to offer, because all they are designed to do is to resplendently reflect the glory of the God who lives there. Right? It's why you get to see a river that the, the basin of the river is made out of diamonds so that it reflects the light that comes from the throne of Christ. Trees that sparkle with the brilliance and beauty of the fruit that they bear in the seasons to reflect the beauty of Christ. Here, verses 11 and 12, a city that's arraigned in glory and grandeur to reflect the beauty of Christ. And it will be a city that's, verse 13, filled with people. Specifically, your children, again, here's the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that was started in verses 1 and 2, that your family will be there, the people of God, your brothers and sisters. And for many of us, that will be actual, those we're related to actually by blood. For many of us, it'll be those that we're related to by adoption, right? Brothers and sisters adopted by the same parents. We may not share blood, but we're family together, Righteousness, you're going to be established. Victory, so that you'll have no enemies around you. And in fact, actually, anyone who stands against you, you'll know will be evil. And in verse 17, my power will be be used to destroy them. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication for me. Now, I, I love this. It's kind of... He reminds us, friends, that the difficulty is worth it. Just time out. Stay the course. Stay the course. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. The end is worth the hard work because you have ultimate blessing. Uh, You know, I'm in the middle of, not middle anymore, I'm in the end of a PhD program that it feels like I've been in for the last decade or two or four. I'm not sure. Something like that. It feels like I've always been in there. It feels a little bit like the Twilight Zone, where everywhere I turn, it's just infinite PhD in all directions. And everybody says you have to be really smart to do a PhD. That's, well, I'm proof that's not true, amongst many of my friends as well realistically, the only thing you have to do, have to do, to be able to get a PhD is just not quit. Really, that's it, is just not quit, right? Everybody using a car illustration, like, oh, if you, if you go get a PhD, you go be a doctor, you, you have to be a Ferrari, right? You have to be this super fast work, like, no, you just, have to, you, you just have to not quit, just keep going. I mean, it's helpful if you're smart, but there are a lot of smart people that quit. You just have to keep going, There's an element of good Christian wisdom in that where for so many of us, it's so easy to grow discouraged by the current pain or to grow discouraged by the current breach in friendships or relationships, to grow discouraged by the betrayal, to grow discouraged by any of the evil and horrible and awful things that are around us. And instead, the Lord holds before us and says, look, the the promises are still there. Just keep going. You can't see it yet, but just keep going. Now, it's taken up in the scriptures in the New Testament, slightly different, where it says don't grow weary in doing good. Run the good race, fight the good fight, stay the course. Don't give up. Now, as application for the Christ-rich church particularly, there are some of us in the room that need to hear that. Don't give up. The Lord hasn't forgotten you. He's not made a mistake of your life. He's not being cruel to you. In fact, actually, he's arranging his blessings around you in ways you will never be able to see this side of glory. But don't give up. Now, there are some of you that are like, man, this is a grim sermon. I was happy before I got here. Friends, for you, praise God for you, Like, really, really, praise God for you. If you're that person that just came in like, ah, bouncing in today, and like, wow, that's a sermon. Would you please take your happy, bouncy, golden retriever life and share that with the people beside you? Because the reality of the matter is there are some of us in here that it's hard to see the good things on the other side of the suffering. It's hard and we need you bouncing, cheerful, sometimes a little too much so, golden retrievers, to kind of drag us along into joy. Because honestly, some of us are grumpy. And you'll say it, some of us like to be grumpy. It's bad we shouldn't be. But we're one body. And we need you cheerful people, <laughs> to help us in our grump to help us be reminded to stay the course, to trust in the promises of God and know that his covenant is true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for our lack of faith. And would you knit us together as a body, grumpies and not, golden retrievers and not. Would we be united together?